0: Welcome to the Ephesians podcast series, Episode 6, Unity in Diversity. The opening of Ephesians chapter 4 marks the principal transition of the letter. In typical Pauline fashion, he turns from theology to ethics, from doctrinal issues to ethical exhortation. But these are not separate categories for Paul, as the indicative always is closely related to the imperative. In the case of Ephesians, the extended thanksgiving section affirms the reader's identity in Christ, so now they are encouraged to live in light of this renewed sense of who they are. But before we get to chapter 4, let's take a brief look back at the conclusion of the first half of Ephesians and understand how it serves as an apt transition between the two halves of the letter. Paul concludes his prayer report in chapter 3 with a stirring doxology that praises the empowering God. He writes, Now to Him who by the power at work within us is able to accomplish abundantly far more than all we ask or imagine, to Him be glory in the Church and in Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. The thematic focus of the first half of Ephesians is upon God, specifically His grace, power, and His plan. Paul's meditations upon God's character and activity result in exuberant praise expressed by this doxology. The reference to God's power at work alludes to the abundance of power language applied to God throughout the first half of the letter while it is clear that God's power is at work in the universe Paul stresses here that God's power is at work within us Christian believers this provides a helpful reminder that we cannot live the Christian life in our own strength It is only possible by God's grace and power at work within us. This idea nicely leads into the ethical exhortations of chapters 4 to 6. God's power at work within us exceeds all expectations. To express this idea, Paul uses a rare compound adverb, huper ek perissu, which is translated abundantly far more than. Andrew Lincoln emphasizes the -the over-the-top hyperbolic quality of this adverb by translating it as infinitely more abundantly above all. He writes in his commentary, neither the boldest human prayer nor the greatest uh, power of human imagination could circumscribe God's ability to act such as the nature of God's power at work in and through us. The locus and the agent of God's glory is the Church and Christ Jesus. The mention of the Church in this doxology, Ente Ecclesia, is noteworthy, as it is the only doxology in the entire New Testament to include a reference to the Church. This reference fits the overall emphasis upon ecclesiology within Ephesians, which stresses the highly significant role that the Church has in God's plan for the cosmos. Clearly, the Church is not optional. According to Ephesians 3.10, it is through the Church that God's manifold wisdom is made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Yoder Neufeld writes, God's glory is visible in the Church and in Christ, and also is generated, so to speak, by Christ and the Church. God is glorified in the life and mission of the Church. With such an elevated view of the role of the Church within God's plan for the cosmos, it should not surprise us that the exhortations of the second half of Ephesians begin with a focus on the corporate life of the people of God. We must recognize that many in our society are disenfranchised or disenchanted with the church. The predominance of the institutional model of the church has turned people off of organized religion. Now the institutional model has positive aspects. It promotes organization, clear leadership structure, and well-defined expectations. At the same time, it has also contributed to a stifling uniformity, a top-down power structure, and an inability to adapt. In stark contrast, the image of the church in Ephesians chapter 4 is one of a living, breathing, growing body. It is a body that promotes both unity and diversity, as the different members grow and work together. So church is not a, a static thing. It is dynamic. It is open to growth, action, movement, and change. Paul marks his transition to perenesis with his opening words in 4.1. Therefore, I urge you in, in the Greek, parakalo un humas, He urges his readers to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And this follows the usual pattern of Paul's letters, as his call to action comes after his affirmation of what God has done for his people. The Christian's grateful response to God's grace, the life that they've been called to, is a life of faithful action. The focus of Paul's initial exhortation is upon the unity of the church. He writes in verse 3, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Here we have a convergence of God's activity and our activity. Clearly God, by His Spirit, has established the unity that is among all Christians. Yet we are urged to exert all of our energy to maintain this oneness in Christ. The verb used here, spodadzo, to make every effort emphasizes that we must give our all with a sense of urgency and eagerness to preserve the unity that the Spirit has produced. The context of this verse helps us to see the ways in which we can maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 2 reads with all humility and gentleness, with patience and bearing one another in love. Humility gentleness, patience, forbearance, and love are the essential Christian virtues that enable us to live in unity with each other. In the first century, the word humility was viewed as a negative attribute, being associated with the subservient attitude of a slave, yet Christ exemplified humility by becoming a servant and putting the needs of others first. We are called to do likewise. Gentleness or meekness is strength under control. It is characteristic of the one who is strong, who could assert his or her power over others, but instead chooses to submit to others. Patience entails being forgiving and long-suffering towards aggravating people. The The person who is patient does not seek revenge when wronged, but offers forgiveness and pursues reconciliation. Bearing with one another involves putting up with the foibles and idiosyncrasies of others in the spirit of mutual tolerance. This is done because of our love for one another. All these qualities are essential for the unity of the body. Joder Neufeld writes, Peace is the fetter of unity. Humility, gentleness, patience, and forbearance are the links in this chain. Connected to Paul's exhortation to keep the unity of the body is a list of seven affirmations or reasons for Christian unity in verses 4 to 6. This crescendo of nouns emphasizes that which is foundational for all Christians. We see here that the union of all Christian believers is found in their shared experience of the Triune God. Our unity is found in the Spirit. Paul says there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling. Our unity is found in the Son. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Our unity is found in the Father. One God and Father of all, who is above all and through all, And in all it is God Father Son and Spirit who unites all Christians enabling them to love and support each other and to work together for the kingdom of God the oneness that we experience in the body of Christ does not result in a stifling uniformity where differences are not accepted the words of the U2 song one can be applied to the church. We're one, but we're not the same. While Paul affirms that we are one body, he also acknowledges the diversity within the body of Christ. His shift focus from the group to the individuals within the group, declaring, But each one of us was given a grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. And God is not operating an assembly line that mass produces generic Christians for quick distribution. God is an artisan who carefully forms us and has given each one of us a gift to be put into action for the greater good of the Church. To illustrate his point, Paul turns to Scripture, quoting and interpreting Psalm 68, 18. The psalm celebrates God's ascent to Mount Zion after liberating his people from their enemies. Here, Paul applies this passage to Jesus, who, through his incarnation, death, resurrection, and ascension, liberated and defeated his enemy. When Christ ascended to take his place of Lord over all creation, he gave gifts to his followers so that they would continue His mission in the world. In verse 7 Paul stressed that a gift is given to every Christian believer. In verse 11 he focuses on the leaders of the church. He writes, so Christ himself gave the Apostles, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Some English translations give the impression that Christ gives gifts to people to enable them to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers. Well, this may be the case in other spiritual gift passages in the New Testament, such as ones found in Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12, this passage is literally saying that the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers are themselves the gifts that Christ gives to the church. This is a list of persons rather than ministries. For a long time I read the text in this way, and I wondered if I had the right idea. I was relieved to find that Yoder Neufeld has a similar interpretation of this passage. This reading of the text shifts the focus from the giftedness of the individual and places it upon the gift of these leaders in the service of the Church. The passage tells us that God's purpose for giving the Church these leaders as gifts is to equip or to train all God's people for the work of ministry which builds up the body of Christ at first glance we might look at this list and conclude that only evangelists pastors and teachers are relevant for the modern church since the age of the Apostles and the prophets is over certainly Apostles as in the original twelve who walked with the earthly Jesus are no longer around as well Prophets who give revelation at the same level as Scripture no longer exist. Yet if we are careful with our definition of apostle and prophet, perhaps we can see a need for these gifts within the modern church. Alan Hirsch in his book, The Forgotten Ways, argues that this five-fold leadership model is essential for the missional church. Apostles, he argues, are the visionary figures in the church who carry the gospel to new places, plant churches, start ministries, and call God's people to contextual mission. Prophets, he argues, are people who have an eye and an ear to God's word and are not afraid to speak God's truth to his people. They are not bound by the status quo and are always challenging the church to do God's will. They have a deep commitment to justice and have a great empathy for those who are marginalized. Yet, prophets are often dismissed as troublemakers. Evangelists are people whose deep desire is to communicate the gospel to others. They are the ones who lead people to become followers of Jesus. Yet, their eagerness to reach those outside the church is sometimes perceived as a lack of concern for those inside the church. Pastors or shepherds are people who nurture the members of the faith community. They give spiritual direction, pastoral care, and guide people to become mature followers of Christ. Finally, teachers are people who who help the church to understand the will of God as revealed in Scripture. They assist those within the faith community to interpret Scripture and to apply its truth to their lives. God gives the church these people as gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, so that all of God's people would be equipped for the work of ministry, so that the body of Christ would be built up. Playing on this body image, Paul concludes this initial exhortation to unity with a metaphor of maturity and growth. His depiction of body life emphasizes that it is essential for every member of the body to work together so that everyone would be connected to Christ and achieve full maturity in Him. Christ, the head of the body, gives life to all the parts of the body and enables each one to work in harmony and to grow together in love. Every member needs to do their part so that the body as a whole might grow. May each one of us Take these words to heart and pray to God, asking Him to do His work within our respective faith communities. This concludes Episode 6 of our Ephesians in August podcasts. Until next time, keep on reading Ephesians and reflecting on its message for you and for the modern church.